Welcome to our classroom. In this space, we talk about education, which is inclusive of, but not limited to, what happens in schools. Education is taking place whenever and wherever we are willing to learn. I am your host, Roberto Germán, and our classroom is officially in session. In this episode of our classroom, we will be talking about working together for equitable schools with Tina Starks, an educational designer for student achievement partners. Tina brings 18 years of experience as an educator to create resources and develop professional learning opportunities centered around liberating and humanizing learning experiences for students. Tina's work is rooted in the belief that historically and systemically marginalized students deserve to have their intellect nurtured, their layered identities valued, and their learning linked to the ways they navigate the world. Her writing has been featured in various publications, including Rethinking Schools, Citizen Ed, and Ed Post. With us today, Tina Starks. Welcome back to our classroom. We are here, live in full effect, and today I have Tina Starks with us. Yes, folks, Student Achievement Partners, uh, an educational designer, long, long-time educator here. When I say long-time, I mean 18-plus years, all right? So don't don't be offended, Tina, because I'm a long-time educator, also 18-plus <laughs> years, <laughs> All right. That, I didn't hear the word old, so I'm good. <laughs> I, I was just going to say that just means we got a lot of wisdom. All That's right. right. We, we got a lot of experience. And I appreciate you being here, Tina. Uh, I follow the, the post that you put up on, on Twitter and stuff you're engaging in as it relates to the educational space. And you published an article recently that caught my attention. And so I, I really want to dig into this article and, and hear directly from you. Uh, about your perspective on some of the things that I noted in the article. And so thank you for, for your work. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for the way you are impacting educators across the country. I appreciate you opening up the opportunity to have this conversation and the platform that you've uh, set up uh, for so many educators to come and share their voice is very important and valued. So thank you. Well, let's go ahead and dig in. In July, you published an article via Ed Post titled, If We Truly Want Equitable Schools, We're Going to Have to Work Together. And at the end of the article, you pose the question for the reader that I will now pose to you, just as a conversation starter. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> <laughs> what is the true problem in our educational system? That was the question that you posed. And the additional question I'm adding is, how are you addressing that problem through your work with student achievement partners? That's a that's a loaded question, right? There's a lot there. And depending on one's experience and perspective, you're going to get a whole lot of different answers. But for me, um, you know, in education, you've got to really go back to the roots of education. Like, where did it start? How was it designed? Uh, what was the purpose? And so if you go back, like post-revolutionary wartime, right, the purpose of education was really about this idea of patriotism, you know, this 
were now, you know, liberated, you know, from from British rule. And now we're, you know, it's about patriotism. It's about religion. And also, you know, these ideas of negative stereotypes around indigenous folks who, who were already here. Um, and then moving along into the Industrial Revolution, now we're talking about unifying the nation and Americanism and, and capitalism, right? And now education is about standardizing um, the kinds of knowledge and skill sets that are necessary to uphold the um, this industry that is going to you know, support this new nation. Then you move on into uh, post-World War II time. Now you've got college attendance being, uh, you know, on the upswing now. And all of this, when you think about it, there is a common thread of focusing on whiteness and white ideals and Americanism and how that's defined through these ideals of whiteness and supporting industry and wealth, right? And so who's, who's gaining access to education? And what is being taught, and I, you know, I, I don't think this is a far stretch to say. If you look at our school system now, it does not look like that. It does not look like the folks that it was designed for. We've got folks, you know, who come from immigrant families. We've got folks of all hues, all cultures, all religions, and so the way education was designed is not serving the people who are in the educational system now. And that includes both um, teachers and students. Um, and so with that in mind, um, you know, what I do as a designer, and, you know, just to be clear, I'm, I'm here speaking on behalf of Tina Renee, uh, yes. what, what Tina Renee does, and not necessarily uh, on behalf of uh, Student Achievement Partners, but um, I am very intentional about addressing the how how do we address um, students who the system was not designed for? How do we address their needs? And how do we address the needs of educators who the system was not designed for as well, right? And so when I say that, I'm talking about um, centering um, these ideas of um, inclusion and, um, you know, leaving space open for perspectives that are not centered around white. Uh, and so that's that's what I do as a designer to make sure I'm bringing in those perspectives. And, and in order to do that, I'm constantly learning and listening to and embracing ideals that may be foreign to my own perspective and experience. Um, yeah, so that's that's my approach. That's good. That's and that's great backdrop in terms of the the need for us to look at the origins of education and, and question. And, and question its initial design and question how it's serving us now or not serving us now. You you talked about, and this is a quote from the article, painful and difficult truths serve as a vehicle for healing and empathy in the quest for anti-racism. What are three action steps we could take to transmute our pain into purpose? Yeah. That's really difficult because I think uh, the educational system has, uh, you know, kind of supported this this big lie, right, around what is the real story. <laughs> you know, we often get the watered down version of history if right. we look at education. And so 
Um, one of the things I think is critical um, to transmute this pain is to just learn the truth and uh, get to a place where we can dispel some of the myths and the single narratives that are often um, at the center of the books that we read, the history that we learn. Um, and sometimes those truths are painful. Um, and that's what I'm referring to when I say we have to transmute, you know, painful experiences and painful truths, because um, in a lot of ways, I find myself doing a lot of unlearning, <laughs> which is a process that we will all have to go through. Right. Um, so uh, there's there's that this learning truth. And then there's the other part of understanding the impact of that truth. So, um, again, that single narrative often likes to paint the picture of America as being this ideal nation that, you know, kind of does no wrong, kind of. Um, but all actions, you know, um, has an impact on some folks. And so in order to really understand and embrace those truths, we need to understand the impact not only on the side of you know, I'll just use the word victorious side, you know, but also the impact on the folks who were harmed by some of the actions, right? Um, so yeah, uh, learning the truth, um, understanding the impact. And then, you know, this other piece of humanizing our interactions with each other. Um, and that, you know, in my mind, that comes from understanding impact, that comes from uh, learning truth. And so, Humanizing, meaning that there's a full scope of uh, experiences and perspectives and realities that we need to understand and embrace. Like our own reality is not the only one. So what is the reality of others? Mm, so learning truth, understanding impact and humanizing interactions. Yeah, yeah, it's essential, essential. And to me, when I hear you talk about those three matters, one of the things that comes to mind for me is the importance of social social emotional learning but also tied to anti-racist anti-bias work right some folks think they work in isolation but that doesn't have to be the case and shouldn't be the case oh 100 percent. and and when we think about social emotional work right um a lot of times that work has has us as educators operating in that space of our intentions. Like we intend to support the student. We intend to make them comfortable. And, um, you know, intentions are great, but it's definitely not enough. We can't stop there. Um, and so, uh, you know, this idea of understanding the impact, it's like, what are the experiences that our students are having um, you know, based on their identities and lived experiences. And so in that sense, social emotional learning is not enough unless it's including um, what are some of the um, uh, oppressive um, forces that our students are living with. If we're not addressing that, we're not getting to the humanizing part. Mm, that's good. Th talking about lived experiences, you mentioned that your own truth telling of your lived experiences in and of American school system as biracial, bilingual, and bicultural Black and Japanese women also humanizes the realities of many students who are denied equitable access to opportunities for relevant and joyful learning. What's your story? What were some of your experiences? 
yeah, it's, um, you know, it's interesting. Like we, when we, when we talk about our experiences as an educator, like we started off saying, oh, 18 plus years. Right. But when you really think about it, I, you know, we have to include our years of experiences as a student also. So now we're, we're talking 50 plus years of experience in, you know, the school system, right? Because there's so much that I learned about education just as a student and my experiences as a student informs the way I teach, right? And the way I do my work as a designer. And so um, when I reflect on my experiences as a student from kindergarten all up through college even, um, I think about the lack of representation. Uh, my experience was that I had four Black educators from kindergarten through college, four, um, and uh, one Japanese educator. And mind you, I, um, I graduated with a degree in Japanese, and I still had one Japanese professor in college. That's right? wild. It's wild. Is wild, right? And and that's not even to mention, you know, the limited representation in books, right? Because um, I'm a product of the '70s, so I went to school in the '70s, and so um, even I think about the work that we did around like community members, and and you know how the women were always like nurses and teachers on these worksheets, right? <laughs> um, so the lack of representation is is huge. Um, so that informs my work a lot now is like to be aware of what representation is. Um, and also my experience as a student uh, is this erasure of identity. As, you know, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm biracial. Um, I'm also bilingual. Uh, but my ability to speak Japanese, my bilingualism was never used as an asset in my academic learning. And so um, that's, that's a shame. I, it is a shame, you know, and I notice as an adult now that when I think back on it, even I have internalized that. Yeah, um, sure. You know, there was no avoiding um, this this idea that somehow Japanese is my second language. Um, and in actuality, uh, it was more likely my first language. <laughs> Uh, because um, I spent the first five years of my life in Japan. Um, so I probably spoke more Japanese than I did English prior to going to school, right? Um, but school has taught me to identify my Japanese um, language as a second language. Mm. Um, and even, uh, I have to, if you'll indulge me for a second, um, even in sixth grade, I remember being pulled out of the classroom one day by a white gentleman, um, and he pulled out this large sheet of, uh, it's a picture, a fold-out picture, kind of like a Where's Waldo kind of picture with like a lot of stuff going on. And he was checking to see how much Japanese I knew. And he was pointing at different objects and saying, how do you say this in Japanese? How do you say this in Japanese? And I remember as an 11-year-old thinking, wait, he's not talking to me in Japanese. So I don't think he knows how to speak Japanese, that he was mm -hmm. just checking to see how quickly I can respond. And um, he determined that I knew too much Japanese. And my parents were told, uh, yeah, stop speaking Japanese at home because she's going to struggle. Wow. 
profile. My dad put bricks on that, by the way. But um, good for him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you mentioned that you had you only had four black teachers and one Japanese teacher from K through college. That's two more black teachers than I had. Whoa. And, and one more Japanese teacher than I had. I didn't study Japanese. Right. But I remember taking a African American theology course in college. It, it was it was taught by white men. Um and you know, I, I actually didn't have a problem with it. He he did his best, you know, he did a decent job, but it's interesting to think about all this stuff and be like, right. wow, what does the data tell us? Right. And imagine the uh, outrage if it was flipped. If a white student was going to school and said, I've only had four white educators between kindergarten and and college, right? Um, The outrage, I would imagine, would be great. (laughs) That that would be an interesting, uh, that would be an interesting case study. I'd love to see it. But too. (laughs) Curiosity, right? I'd love to see it. It's, I, I think we'd be hard pressed to come by that one, but I would I'd be very interested in seeing that. Thank, but you know, for... it, Roberta, it leads me to this a moment of um, uh, that was I felt like was a catalyst for me when I visited a black-owned bookstore in college. Um, it was the first time I walked into a bookstore knowing that it was black-owned. And when I walked in there and I saw that there were like tons of black authors, like there's more than Langston Hughes, because that's all that was. Right. Right. right? I I love I love me some. I love. Yes. A dream deferred. (laughs) But there's so much. Right. And also that our history goes beyond the struggle. Like I saw novels in there. I saw children's books. I saw all Mm. kinds of. Right. 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 Talk about it. Yeah. And um, I have to tell you, I I really believe that was the moment for me that defined without really knowing it until later, that that was going to define how I show up as a parent, Mm. how I show up as an educator, because I instantly recognized the betrayal because I'm thinking at that point I was at the end of of college and I'm thinking, so I went through all these years of school. No one told me any of this stuff. Right. You know? Um, so, you know, I include that as part of my experience, that that came from my professor. Uh, it was an African thought class. Um, and he sent us to a Black-owned bookstore to go purchase certain books because they weren't going to be carried wow. at, the, at the UCLA bookstore. My goodness. Right? Yeah. The- <laughs> yeah, you know, I think about what you're saying, and, and it brings me to my college experience. And for me, it's it, it wasn't like I had this moment where I would, went into a black black owned bookstore like you did, but I think it was more. I was so I don't know if overwhelms the terms. It's probably not overwhelmed. Maybe I was just outraged mm. by the sea of whiteness at my. At the college, predominantly white institution, and and me and my brothers, you know, the dudes that I met in college, and uh, one that I went to high school with. I mean, these are my brothers still this day. We struggled. We struggled to 
just exist on that campus, you know, to, we didn't struggle to be who we are because we were always going to be who we are, but they struggled to accept us, you know, like the institution that folks, you know, students, professors, uh, authorities. I mean, they had us on a blacklist for the, for the, like the campus safety. They had us on a blacklist. I mean, it was crazy. And, and, Part of it, you know, we were extremely outspoken, started a TV show called The Underground Railroad. But we were doing all this studying and, and the knowledge we were obtaining about ourselves, about our histories and, and uh, the histories of Black, Indigenous and other peoples of color, you know, wasn't happening in our classes. This was us doing a, the additional work outside right. of the regular schoolwork that we had right. to do right. because we were so hungry to like, learn about ourselves, but also to share it with people. And, and really, that was the thing that inspired. So the book that I'm about to publish, Blowing Tears, uh, a YA poetry book, that started during those college days. That yes. started, like, we were just writing like crazy. Like, we would get together just to have writing sessions and freestyle. Like, yo, we got to write for our survival on this right. campus. Right. You know, because if we don't find the right outlets, Whatever we turn to is probably ultimately going to get us out of this institution. You know, yes. maybe it's because, you know, we can't channel some of our frustrations. So it might come out in, you know, more violent ways or or we might be lashing out or we might shut down and stop doing the schoolwork and just focus on these other things. So writing and, and writing as a community became yes. the outlet for us and, and, and became the source of power for us to be able to um, support one another, express some of the things that we're going through, but also just like continue to find our identity and tell yes. our stories. That's right. It's like you're running this um, this counterintelligence to what the school actually provides, right? Because you're doing this additional learning, but you know, Uncle Jimmy uh, Baldwin does talk about the power of the writer, right? That that is the job of the writer uh, to then capture the experience and spread the word. Like we have to um, bring out the light of truth on, on our experiences. And even, um, you know, we see it in Goldie Muhammad's work where she went back to the Black literary societies and literacy and learning and writing and reading and all of that was about uh, freedom and liberation of Black people, right? And so we're still doing that today. We're still doing that today. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So you 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 mentioned you you mentioned Baldwin. Let's turn to the elder that you focused on in your article, yes. Frederick Douglass. Of the mm-hmm. four, you you use four powerful quotes. I mean, yeah. we could have done this podcast just on the quotes alone. Yes, he was a powerful man. We could have just picked one quote and be like, let's let's talk about the quote the whole podcast, but we might just have sure. to do this some other time. <laughs> but of the four Frederick Douglass quotes you cited, which one resonates with you the most and why? Oh, that's really unfair, Roberto. Here you one, go. Here you it's go. Unfair. Look, I, you know, um, you know, there's the quote, um, you know, it's not light uh, we need, but fire. 
Like that to me is kind of like too easy to say, yeah, that one resonates with me. Um, you know, because that, for example, that, that moment in the bookstore, it ignited something, right? So there's like this level of like righteous rage, you know, that kind of simmers underneath of what mm. we do. Um, and not to be confused with violent rage, right? That's, that's different, but there's this, this rage that we, we, uh, are entitled to. Um, but I think the, the quote that I will say is the one <laughs> would be, um, the quote that starts with, uh, my friends, I have come to tell you something about slavery. and. Um, I choose that one because I had some internal conflict around how to work with white folks around this idea of equity and racism, right? When I went into education, let me tell you, I was not shy about telling folks that I was not trying to teach grown white folks anything. (laughs) Oh, I've, I've heard. Yes, I've heard it and I've said it. Yes. And I was unapologetic about it. I was going into education to reach the students because that's where the change is going to happen. But what do I do every day now? Training people, design. Yes. yes. And I'm working with grown white folks, right? Um, and so what I realize is that there is some significant value in our narrative. Um because our narrative and our experiences are what what white educators do not know and cannot know unless we share it, right? So um, going back to those three things around like know the truth, know the impact, and humanize, right? And without our narrative, without us sharing our experience with white educators, that can't happen. Now, I, I am not suggesting that. Um, as folks who uh, are in marginalized groups that we have to carry the burden to now, you know, have the responsibility to teach white folks, right? I am not suggesting that, you know, they need to do the learning. But in order for their learning to be complete, uh, for those of us who are in a place where we have, you know, acquired some healing, and we're able to talk through our trauma, um, that there's some value in that experience. Um, you know, much like Frederick Douglass spoke to groups of white folks about slavery, his experience in slavery. If he can do that, then I can talk about when they tried to get me to stop talking Japanese, right? Yeah, yeah. A few things. First of all, I see what you did, Tina. You snuck in two quotes. That's all right. That's all right. We're going to continue the interview. Add up. You know, I also think there's there's a season for everything, right? So, like, I think about moments where, where I've had that mindset. I'm like, I ain't trying to talk to anybody about anything. I'm just trying to do my work, man. I'm trying to keep my peace, my sanity. I'm just trying to stay balanced. And and there's space for that, right? There's a season for that. Um I think, you know, part of what I'm extracting from what you're sharing is like everybody can't have that mindset that like, you know, hey, you're just going to stay in that space. Like some of us actually have to 
however uncomfortable it may make us, we, we have to be willing to be in that position of like helping to drive the narrative and playing that role of, of the teacher, you know, instructing folks in terms of our histories and whatnot. And um, because if we don't tell our stories, then who will, right? If, if we don't instruct the, the way we want to see folks instructing, then it's, it's going to be hard to change that expectation, right? And so, you know, folks like us, uh, we have to recognize when it's our season to, to really lean in and, and when it might be our season to like, you know what, I need a breather. I need to step back. Uh, I need to focus on, you know, my own health, sanity, peace and, and whatnot. And so uh, I appreciate uh, your courage for for taking this on, for leaning into this. And I do want to read the 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 entire quote <clears throat> uh, because it's so powerful. Um, it's so powerful. I think people people need to hear this um, because, man, these words. Right. And, and this is coming from somebody like I don't like thinking about. I don't like talking about slavery. I don't like watching uh, movies of enslavement. I don't, you know, like because it just. I, I just get this visceral reaction, you know what I'm saying? Like, ah, my blood's boiling. I get so mad. I'm like, yo, don't don't put me in front of nobody right now. This might be on. <laughs> and yet you read these words from Douglas and you think of what he went through and you, you think of his leadership, his words, his impact. And like, yeah, I, I got to read this. And yes, so, we do. Uh, states, my friends, I have come to tell you something about slavery. What I know of it, as I have felt it. When I came north, I was astonished to find out that abolitionists knew so much about it that they were acquainted with its deadly effects as well as if they had lived in its midst. But though they can give you its history, though they can depict its horrors, they cannot speak as I can from experience. They cannot refer you to a back covered with scars as I can. For I have felt these wounds. I have suffered under the lash without the power of resisting. Frederick Douglass, I have come to tell you something about slavery, 1841. Oof. Uh. Thank you, brother, for doing that, because I have read that multiple times. But uh, the way you read it, the energy behind um, your reading uh, really just gave me chills all over again. Uh, you know, uh, this is something that Frederick Douglass has left behind for us mm. to understand, um, you know, to again, going back to the truth of history and really the experience of Black humanity, right? Like this happened, you know, long, long time ago, but it lives in our bones. It lives in our bones. Um, yeah. So thank you for doing that reading. Appreciate it. You know, sister, so I'm going back to college again. I wrote I wrote a poem. I, I was in a poetry contest in college and I won first and third place. The first place poem was a piece that I wrote in 
if I remember correctly, it was like my major American authors class. The poem was, the, the poem's titled The Freedom Train, and it was inspired by Frederick Douglass. I wrote the piece. I wrote the piece during a time that a friend of mine, Louis Torres, was murdered. I was a sophomore in college. And again, this like this is what I knew to do. You know, when things are happening in my life, I write. And there was a lot going on besides the fact that my friend was murdered. I was in this class and we were reading and learning about the biography of Frederick Douglass. I was the only brother. I was the only person of color in the entire class. Student, professor, everybody else is white. And my professor was great, by the way. I loved her. Uh, pr- professor Kathleen Sean Kane. She she was wonderful, and and she also she understood that I I was going through it at that time that that my friend got killed, and then like dealing with the content and like looking around the class, and I'm like, I told you, I, I and I just explained to you like when we're talking about and reading about and seeing films related to the enslavement of black folks, you know, I'd be ready to, I'd just be ready to get it in. And so, um, thankfully she worked with me, understood, gave me some flexibility I need, like step out. I'm like, yo, you got to leave, go, you know, do what you got to do. Go, go see the school therapist or whatever. And, uh, you know, thinking about Douglas's experience and reading about it and and what he went through, it, it helped me to kind of get in touch with my own emotions in in the particular context that that I was in, like the what what happened to my friend and what I, I don't want to even go into details, but it was you know it was it was horrible, and and like the. Douglas's words, it, you know, even though there was there was a lot of trauma in what he experienced, it it did give me life, you know, in a in a very strange and interesting way. Like it it gave me life. It it, it helped me to feel empowered. Um, because there's there's victory in his story, right? There's there's victory in him overcoming and going through what he went through. And, and so that that also helped me to get through those difficult moments that I was going through. So thank you. Thank you for, for this article that I, this wasn't even part of, I, this was not part of the interview. Like when I was thinking and prepping and uh, getting questions down and whatnot, like this literally just came right now after we just did this segment and, and read this quote. Uh, but the fact that, you know, you framed your article around Douglas and, and used these four quotes. It's it's really bringing back some stuff for me. So thank you. Oh, I appreciate your uh, vulnerability to even share your own experience. Um, you know, um, it's amazing how our ancestors have a way of leaving behind medicine for us, right? But just being able to have the awareness to be able to take in that medicine. Um yeah, um appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. So 
If you had an opportunity to have lunch with Frederick Douglass, what would you say to him? What questions would you ask him? Like, bring bring us into that scene. Oh, bring us into that my lunch. Gosh, I have thought about this so much. Like, what would it have been like to sit with Frederick Douglass? Like, I don't know. Um, I you know as corny as this might sound, I mean, you know, gratitude first. I mean, you know, gratitude for so much, like his, his example of excellence. I, you know, I think about his, um, his speaking, writing ability um, in the context of illegal learning for black folks is like an example of like, whoa, I mean, you know, so many things like our possibilities, number one, but the power of um, literacy, you know? Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. So there's, there's that. Um, and I guess, well, for one thing, I think he would not have any context for 2023. So I think he would have some questions for me. Yeah. Uh, which I would be glad to answer, but <laughs> um, be like, how long? How much time you got? How much time you got, you got Mr. Douglas? Right. <laughs> Let me tell you about what's happening. <laughs> about you. these books that are being banned. So much, right? Oh, um, but the one thing that is consistent, though, is his message of humanizing. Like that, that is consistent. So, um, you know, I would I would just be wondering if we are we are doing him proud mm-hmm. or, you know, have have we gleaned what he wanted us to glean from what he's left behind for us? Um, and, you know, the wisdom of ancestors, like what are we doing well and what are we missing? Because obviously there's still work to be done. We're still calling for humanizing experiences, right? Uh, so um, that's what I would want to know. I would want to know, like, what would he advise us today? Yeah, those are, that's good. That, that would be a good lunch. <laughs> so what's the message of encouragement that you have for our audience? Yeah, in addition to doing those three things, right? Yes, Learning. yes understanding impact and humanizing. I think really um, to understand the power of expanding one's reach, like think about where you are, what's your proximity and what is your capacity and expand it, you know? Um, and, and that is, that's room for everyone. So if you're, if you're in the space of like reading and learning and studying, how can you expand that? Can you read, learning and study with someone else? Can you read, learn, and study with a group of folks? Um, if you're if if you're in the classroom, how can you expand your reach about your knowledge and experience and expertise? Can you write something? Can you write a blog? Can you write a book? Can you start a podcast? Right? Um, whatever it is, it's just from wherever you are. Expand the reach. Make it bigger. That's good. That's good. Tina, where can folks follow you? Uh, they can follow me on Twitter um, and on Instagram. I'm still learning Instagram. I'm working on my game. I'm 
relatively new there, but my handle's the same, Tina R underscore Starks. Uh, so you can find me in those two spaces and you can also find me on LinkedIn as well. All right. Well, I'm still learning Twitter, so don't feel bad. <laughs> We're all learning, but we're also trying to, the reason we're learning <clears throat> is because knowledge is good and we're trying to expand our reach, folks. Sorry. So, hey, there you have it. Tina Starks gave y'all some serious gems. Read the article. Again, check it out for yourself. Go to Ed Post. The article is titled, If We Truly Want Equitable Schools, we're going to have to work together. And that's a good message for us, folks. That is a good message for us to embrace. And just a reminder, make sure that you are learning truth, understanding impact, and humanizing actions, interactions. Humanize your interactions, all right? Don't see folks as the other. See them as human. Hey, Tina. Appreciate you. Oh, that was good. This was good talking about all of this stuff, especially talking about Frederick Douglass. Uh, I thank you for the work that you're doing. I thank you for for your willingness to share and and to bring us into your thinking, bring us into your world, but to also challenge and encourage us. And that's part of what this platform is about. We want to learn, grow, step outside of the four walls of the schoolhouse and, and, and really dig deeper into our history, dig deeper into what's happening with current practices and figure out where it is that we can make adjustments that will better serve our, our scholars, better serve us, uh, adult practitioners and others, uh, and even folks obviously outside of the realm of education, right? Because we're we're all impacted uh, in one way, shape or form by the journey of education, even if you're not within the realm of the schoolhouse. So Tina, thank you. We'll have to do this again at some point. Maybe it'll be a podcast simply focusing on Frederick Douglass's words. I would love that. Thank you. Appreciate you and much respect. Peace. As always, your engagement in our classroom is greatly appreciated. Be sure to subscribe, rate the show, and write a review. Finally, for resources to help you understand the intersection of race, bias, education, and society, go to multiculturalclassroom.com. Peace and love from your host, Roberto Germán.